0: Pamela Garfield Yeager is known as the truthful therapist. As we talked about in part one of our conversation, Pamela is working to help people find good support for their mental health in the wake of the pandemic, during the rise of a new sect of scientism enforcing gender identity theory. Pamela has spoken to many therapists who agree with her that pushing gender ideology is not healthy for children because it often asserts a one size fits all approach for individuals, unique struggles. Pamela is taking her 20 years of experience and building a comprehensive online parent guide to mental health with the tagline therapy not indoctrination. Since so many families need mental health support, Pamela's vision is to provide information for parents so they are empowered to know what to expect, the questions to ask a therapist, understand what skilled therapy looks like, and know how much they should be involved The answer is, a lot. The program will include pre-recorded lessons, live workshops, and consultations. During our interview, we discuss what drives an introvert like her to speak out so publicly, and some of the personality types of modern day dissidents. We also explore how victim mentality can be avoided even when grappling with the cycle of abuse, and how words like trigger and trauma have been co-opted. I ask Pamela, How would you compare the desire for medical freedom regarding vaccinations with the desire for medical freedom regarding rights to get treated for gender dysphoria? Is it possible that some people who have been defeating the mandates and many who have been experiencing abuse by political power could have some form of PTSD? With part two of our podcast, I'm Sienna Mae Heath, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. Let's bring this back to children. I, I was just reading a part of this book um, called Trans when, Ideo- when Ideology Meets Reality by Helen Joyce, and mm-hmm. I, it was just lent to me, so I've actually only read a few pages, but I was told to look at the chapter called Child Interrupted, um, and this details how helping children with gender dysphoria of course, um, all started with the best of intentions. And do you mind if I just read to you a little bit of it because sure. I'd love to get your thoughts on like the history of it dating back to the 1990s and how that's escalated, um, you know, perhaps like worldwide, but also like you know, in your own personal experience, what you've what you've noticed um, in in the roles that you've served at work. So it says here, It all started with the best of intentions. In the 1990s, clinicians who accepted the most gender dysphoric children would desist, wondered what could be done to help the minority who wouldn't. Seems sensible enough. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There seemed to be no early way to identify them. Some studies suggested a correlation between the severity of gender dysphoria and likelihood of persistence, but not enough to predict an individual's path the only option was to wait and see, but that had downsides. In particular, the irreversible changes puberty brings. These differ for trans women and trans men because testosterone's effects are so hard to disguise. So it goes on to describe, you know, trans women might have a deep voice and an Adam's apple among other things and men experience it differently. Um, So the question posed was, might there be a way to delay these changes, giving more time to determine who who would persist among the children? So clinicians in Amsterdam decided to put puberty on pause. Starting around age 12, they injected a small group of children with tryptoraline, or tryptoraline, one of a group of drugs known as puberty blockers, because they stopped the signals sent by the pituitary gland that orchestrate puberty by triggering estrogen or testosterone production. The idea was that any desisters would come off blockers when they realized that they no longer wanted to transition and suffer nothing worse than a slight delay to their development and grow up identifying as their own sex, very likely gay. persisters meanwhile would be spared undesired physical development and at age 16 when they were old enough to consent so you know this is europe so i I guess age 16 Mm -hmm. is the age for that um they were old enough to consent to irreversible treatment they would start cross sex hormones develop the secondary sex characteristics of the opposite sex and pass well for the rest of their lives but this is not how things played out. Instead, mm-hmm. something striking happened. Of the 70 children enrolled in a study between 2000 and 2007, every single one progressed to cross sex hormones. Almost all had surgery at age 18, the removal of any breast tissue that had developed despite the blockers, and sometimes phalloplasties. Yeah. For People sure
1: can look that up. Yeah. You it's, want to talk? Yeah. I, I th- actually, today there's a lot of pictures going around about it. I, yeah. can't, even, I can't even, I know I'm,
0: I'm too shy to describe what it is. It says it right here. People can Google it, but basically it's constructing new genitals, um, for our females With and an arm that's to yeah. me,
1: actually, that's like one of the most
0: or thigh. It's bizarre. Yeah. yeah, And castration and vaginoplasty for the male. So these children were all highly gender dysphoric and had not desisted by the start of puberty. And of course, the clinicians believe they had done a good job by picking out likely persisters. Yeah, but- And indeed, it is plausible that they had, but recall that every single study on children had found a majority desisting. And the crazy thing is, is that as I read on it, <laughs> despite all of this happening in Amsterdam, I mean, maybe this isn't news to you, but like, like Canadian clinicians followed along with the Dutch and the first American clinic started in 2007, just as those so-called studies in Amsterdam were ending and they didn't go well. Yeah. Um, And I think right here in San
1: Francisco, I think the one started here, at least in 2008, I think it was.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And like, this is actually the last thing I want to just point out from this chapter is apparently it says here, the UK clinic, Tavistock, um, that receives all specialist referrals in England and Wales for gender dysphoric under 18s. so, uh, known as the Tavistock for the mental health unit on, on which it sits, was more cautious, but in 2014, it also started prescribing routinely. And as we know, um, Tavistock is is uh, shut not down. doing well. Yeah, they're <laughs> shut down. They've got thousands of, or uh, more than a thousand massive lawsuits on their doorstep um mm-hmm. but I'm just I'm curious what came up for you as I, I read that because I was really struck by the relatively quick progression of things and the nonsensical um like the nonsensical development of like oh okay this didn't go well and immediately the same year in 2007 Canada and America were like let's just keep yeah going.
1: let's follow their lead what well what do you think about this? So, yeah. Well, I mean, this the cynical side of me is well, the thing that I you know, I said before I was just so naive and now I'm not as naive. Well, I'll tell you the biggest thing that I, I was very naive about. And I think the reason the thing that's driving all of this is money. I think I think the pharmaceutical companies are and whoever's behind it or backing them. I think that's what's driving this stuff. So I'm going to guess, I don't have the facts, but I'm going to guess there were some investors and people that were behind this to continue this, to keep this going after they got the data that maybe showed that it wasn't so great.
0: So it's so, this, it's this toxic mix of good intentions and
1: money. Maybe it started with good intentions yeah. and then it, I think it carried on with money. Yeah. I, I just, I, I just now, my. I've turned into a cynical person. I guess I'm a conspiracy theorist. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I mean the, the theory the, the theory behind, you know, I think they're I actually did a post on this, but they're they're really trying to do I think they're they're pushing on little kids, one to I think they're just trying to destabilize kids and I think that there's a whole agenda there. But I think the way they're able to market that and be able to convince people that it's okay to start with little kids is because the few people that do have, you know, I guess the way it's described there won't desist. The people that really will carry on with these dysphoric feelings throughout their adult life, they do usually know at a very young age. It started at a very young age, but then most of the people actually grow out of it. But how do you tease that out? I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know how It seems like nobody knows the answer to that. And then people want to pretend that they do. Um, But I I, I think it takes a lot of time and a lot of, you know, trying to uh, having genuine therapy and, and really getting to know a person to know whether or not this is genuine. And I think it, we, unfortunately, the people that are suffering with this, these dysphoric feelings, which I do have compassion for, and I think it's a very painful thing to go through, they have to wait. And, now we know that the puberty blockers, the ones they're using now, Lupron, is so dangerous, and it has way more risks than it has benefits. We, you can't just—they're trying to say it, you just pause it, and then we can just decide later. Oh, let's just pause puberty, and then later, when you know when they're a little older, they'll just decide, and then they'll just be normal. It doesn't—it doesn't work that way. You can't just pause puberty. How much damage? I mean, any—if you stop for a second and think about that—that does tremendous damage. And now we know for sure the FDA just put out a a warning about brain swelling. We know that it causes uh, low bone density and it causes early onset osteoporosis for many people.
0: Yeah, I wanted to bring up the FDA too, because you told me privately that these puberty blockers are still considered off-label. Is that right? Yeah, they are.
1: They're off-label. You know, we can't even take, I don't know, can I say it, the horse medicine for- for COVID because that's off label, but we can give puberty blockers to children that's used to chemically castrate them. That's all just fine. So I don't understand. I mean, I do understand because it's about money. I I do wonder if there's
0: an element of being very Western centric or like, you know, America centric in this, because like, meanwhile, um, Sweden's National Board of Health and Welfare issued a national policy update, very similar to one of their major hospitals, which ended the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors outside of clinical studies. And so this is happening, you know, in a, in a, actually one of the countries that the left tends to praise I for know that's their example
1: that's their whole their whole model
0: yeah and, and meanwhile just to bring it back to the U.S. like in in my state of Pennsylvania here our governor just the other day signed an executive order banning conversion therapy he called the practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity junk science yeah so this is, I have a two-part question for you on this. Do you agree with him that conversion therapy that attempts to change one change one's sexual orientation is junk science is conversion therapy for gender identity junk science?
1: Well, first of all, those two things are very different and they should not be lumped together and the, and they're they're doing it on purpose because in my opinion because, Most people do believe that it is bad to have conversion therapy for gay and lesbian people. They don't, most people at this point in our society believe that we shouldn't be trying to convert people who have gay or lesbian feelings genuinely, right? I I don't know what the science is, but I, I, I tend to believe that people are born that way. Um, um,
0: i mean during my conversation with kat considering she studies biology we we got into the science a little bit on um like the the brain chemistry of those who are homosexuals like there there is like scientific backing this has been in the works for decades as as i understand
1: yeah but so that i would but it's not the same as the transgender thing and what what's Well, and then the other, it's funny, someone just asked me the other day, what is trans? The other thing about it is trans is such a broad word. um, It means so many different things to so many different people. And there are so many different experiences. So they're the, what I said before, the really rare population who are experiencing really genuine dysphoric feelings that really can't tolerate being in this body that they're born in. Um, does it mean they were born in the wrong body? No, I, I don't phrase it that way. It means they really feel uncomfortable in this body and the, and they're struggling with a mental illness.
0: Okay. And- so would would that be the clinical definition of being what
1: some might call true trans? I think so. I I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the DSM lately to see how they word it don't really care what they say. I should do that. I I don't know. I should just see what they say. It used to be called gender identity disorder. They changed it to be less stigmatizing. But the problem is, is nowadays, what is a trans person, especially with these kids? There's somebody that saw a bunch of videos on TikTok and they've been isolated for two years because of a COVID lockdown and they don't feel comfortable with their peers or their friends are doing it and they want to fit in. I mean, that's not the same thing so how can we how can we put those those two kinds of people together and Mm -hmm. then I'm just naming two but there's all there's all different individual situations where someone might kind of fall or believe that they would like to change their body and there might be all other so many underlying reasons for that and all that needs to be explored and so I just don't think that that's yeah none of this is the same as gay and lesbian
0: no, I, I agree. Um, I, do you think if we lived in a healthier society, we wouldn't have gender dysphoria?
1: I, I don't know if we'd ne- have none, but I think we'd have a lot less. I'll say that. I don't mm. know if we'd have none. I don't know if it's zero. I, I, I don't know. People always want to act like they know the science. yeah do you know what you know what I've really learned is that no one understands the brain. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. <laughs> all, I can do yeah. all I can do is go by my experience and talk to people and give my best guess on what's, you know, help and working with them collaboratively to be able to help them. But yeah. am I going to act like this high and mighty expert? Like I understand how the brain works. Literally nobody knows. And all this research and all this science, I don't trust any of it at this point. Yeah. Well, it's so- like, so- yeah. As I
0: understand psychiatry as a, as a very new field and they've really, you yeah. know, where, even psychiatrists will admit how little they know about the brain and how experimental some of these treatments are even just for other mental illnesses. Yeah,
1: yeah. definitely. I mean, medications you see that they can help, they can, I, it's controversial because some people are very anti-medication and the truth is that they do help some people. So I, I'm not saying, I don't, I've, I'm not giving anybody medical advice and I'm not telling anybody not to take medication. But we also there's so much we don't know. So we can't just pretend that if you just take this, then, you know, here's a little formula to be better. It doesn't work that way. You know, it's, it's a lot of trial and error. And a psychiatrist, a good psychiatrist, at least will admit that. Um, I've worked in programs where I was working collaboratively with the psychiatrist. I obviously wasn't prescribing the medication because I'm not a medical doctor. But I'd watch the patients go through these It's usually about three or four months where they kind of go through this experimental phase where they try to figure out which medications, which dosage, what time of day, and what would work. And usually they would, a lot of them would come out the other end and have at least something that would work for them or make them at least better than they were to begin with. Mm. But, um, you know, there were a few that they didn't, they stopped taking medication altogether, but this was a program with more severe mental illness. You know, people with schizophrenia or type one bipolar, where they had severe manic episodes, things of that sort. So they, they usually did benefit from some medication, but then, you know, nothing's perfect. And we it, it's a work in progress and each person is different. So yeah. 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 No, I don't know. Science schmienz. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> You and know, I, I can't yeah. say.
0: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate I appreciate that candor and those insights because this actually this actually brings us back to individual rights, just individuality, uh, honoring each person's journey. This I sound like a liberal now. <laughs> know.
1: Well, you kind of are in a way. Yeah,
0: I I think I mean we're both yeah.
1: touchy feely. Okay, to audience, we're both very touchy feely <laughs> ladies, and it just because we're just because you don't go under the label of, I don't know, leftist, liberal, whatever, doesn't mean you're not a touchy-feely person. We're very touchy-feely, and that doesn't, it can, not all conservatives are all t- hardcore. Yeah. I mean, we're hardcore, I guess, in a way, because oh, yeah. we speak our minds, but we also really feel things deeply, Absolutely. and both of us are like that. Yeah, and, and um,
0: just to sort of, like, give us an idea of where I'm going, I, I have, I have, I have to admit first of all that like when i ask about a healthier society i am coming from a spiritual background so like when i think about healthy i think about um faith and i know that one of your um like one of your categories in the program that you're developing is faith and mental health yeah and i i was reflecting on on your work in that way and also my interview with kat when she talked about her journey of detransitioning. Um, we talked about the spiritual practice of sitting with discomfort in the body mm. and how that is incompatible with gender identity yeah. theory and practice, because in practice that it's all about changing the body and like fast. Mm-hmm. I know it's complicated, but in some ways it's fast tracking oh. that process. There goes the train outside.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. about a quick fix is what it is. It's about the sort of single solution to something that's usually very deep and complex that needs work, that's not easy. And so yeah. I think that's the biggest problem with all of this. Nothing's easy when it comes to pain and our lives. And, and what role does spirituality play in, in mental health as a whole? So yeah I wrote a, a whole lesson on this because I think spirituality is getting lost within the mental health field. And even though I was trained at NYU which is pretty left leaning but I was trained in the late 90s and back then they did emphasize using spirituality in mental health and make sure that you that that was a question in your assessment and make sure that's integrated in the work especially if that's if someone believes in something really strongly or even if they just to explore with them, maybe if they have conflicts within their belief systems to you know help them figure it out, whatever that is. And so I did a whole lesson to basically emphasize that it is important and spirituality is an extremely, it is extreme strength for someone to have That's to believe in something. It gives somebody purpose, it connects people, um, it helps you sit with uncomfortable feelings and so it it really is a very healing thing. So I did I did a whole lesson on basically what are some of the barriers, which a lot to do with how therapists aren't trained anymore and how many therapists aren't religious and how they maybe don't think of it and how they don't respect it. Honestly. Ah uh, see, that's the
0: pain point for that was for my my pain point. <laughs> um it's that they don't respect it or they, no, don't, they don't. Cause- yeah. Cause it's one thing if they just don't hold those beliefs and they're able to sit with those beliefs and help a client understand why they feel the way they feel. But if they just flat out don't respect it and they, they have think it's this, stupid
1: yeah it's um yeah. yeah and and the leftist way is is that religion is stupid and and you're stupid for thinking that and you know we're smarter and above you because you know we see the real world the way it is or i don't know what <laughs> uh, but just that they don't respect religion especially the real judeo-christian values right like that's too much i guess of a colonizer way to think or something
0: well i i I do i do see a sect of the left behaving that way but i also see progressive christians um Mm -hmm. you know progressive christianity is is something that's been forming for i'm pretty sure decades but given i'm 32 i'm Feel like I shouldn't say decades ever, unless I've done a lot of research on something. (laughs) Um, but truly though, like I mean, I have friends who are they say they're progressive Christians and so they hold both worlds, both realms of thought. But it's in this some honestly, sometimes I don't know how they do that. Um, I mean it's it's fueled by identity politics and it's it's lacking in um like the reverence for the individual and the 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 respect for the individual's relationship with God, and I yeah. do, I wonder, I I do wonder where that comes from. I, interestingly, I do find a lot of collectivism within churches, and sometimes yeah. I appreciate it, uh, but I I think like there is there is more of like a a dance between individualism and collectivism, that some like. Some are kind of fear to admit because they want to choose one or the other mm-hmm. but we like as you've said like we are we're human beings we need connection and a lot of the past two years has shown I know for me it's it's really shown me what my boundaries are what my limits are you know I thought I was just a full-on introvert for spring 2020 mm-hmm. I'm like oh I got this <laughs> I can I can isolate I don't need yeah. people and by summer I was I was really craving, like, just, yeah, I felt like it was so lame. Actually. I was like, I just want to have a hug. I just want to have friends. Uh-huh.
1: You know? <laughs> I know, but it's like, yeah, I, but you're not, most people went through that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I just thought I had more, more introvertedness in me. Um, but but that doesn't anyway. mean you're
1: introvert really just means that you'd recharge alone. It doesn't yeah. mean you don't want human contact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah, religion isn't imp- most people, I I don't know, I don't want to generalize too much, but I'm noticing a lot that people have conflicted views on religion and their religious views. And you don't need to be kind of rigid in your views. And they, I think most people, they shift throughout their life, right? Depending on maybe what they're going through you know, specifically, or just the stage of life they're in. So I think it's important for a therapist to be able to be open to hearing helping that person explore whatever conflict they're going through. Maybe they're angry at God for something, or maybe they're just, they're angry at their church. I mean, I I know a lot of people who are gay have really conflicted feelings towards religion because they, they, they have a faith and they believe, but a lot of times their churches have rejected them for their sexual orientation. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with. So a therapist that's open to just listening to what a person's going through that that's, what I would encourage, or that's what, that's what I think mm. it should be done in the sessions. And then I got to be mm. honest, I'll even disclose. So I'm doing this whole lesson on spirituality, and I've talked about it a lot. I'm personally not even that religious at all. I'm not. Um, but, but I really respect people who are. And I mean, I got to even say a piece of me is jealous of, of those who are more religious. I wish I were more. I am I'm, too. I'm just not. Um, but but I do get fr- I I'll tell you this though I do get frustrated with with the really hard right Christian conservatives who say everything can be solved through God or if you just find Jesus and that's it, and I, I honestly respect that that worked for them and I don't I don't want to say that's wrong because it's not because if it worked for them. But what I, what's frustrating to me is that they can't see outside of that worldview because that just doesn't work for everybody. And so I, I just would hope people could be open-minded on all ends, both be open-minded towards, you know, people who are very religious and then be open to people who are less religious to be able to work with all, you know, to all kinds of people, I guess. Absolutely. And then people change.
0: Yeah, And, and you did a great reel on Instagram about the human nature of the left and the right, Mm -hmm. um, which brought to mind for me that conservatives can be kind of callous about therapy. (laughs) And meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, leftists claim to care about mental health, but they really only care about their own mental health. Um, Because the the moment you bring up a concern of yours, or something that's keeping you up at night screw you.
1: Yeah, uh, but I, I they're out saving with, the world. They yeah. don't actually care about you. That's um, right, kind Tynosal of yeah. talked about that. They care more about the justice issues. I mean, that's what I learned when I did my disability. You're not going to the pussy hat march. You're a bad person. I don't care about you anymore. Oh, but you can't tie your shoes. I, I don't care. I haven't talked to you in three years and I won't. I and mean, that's what I learned about my friends. It really all came together to a full head. Yeah, I mean, these people who were so supposedly caring about the world, but then their close friend of them was suffering right in front of them, and they didn't come and visit me and talk to me, or even just send me a text message saying how are you mm. feeling today. Wow, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah,
0: and and I I I do want to acknowledge the left and the right paradigm, but at the same time, I do feel like as uh, as the months go by lately, I do feel like perhaps there's more graves in the middle. Um yeah. but just for the purpose of our conversation now, mm-hmm. like acknowledging this polarization, what would you say is the right's relationship to mental health?
1: Well, I think I think what's happened is, is the right has rejected mental health because the left has hijacked it, because they just look at people a therapists as crazy lunatics. <laughs> and so I I think that's part of it. Um and, and I kind of don't blame them in a way now that I see it more clearly. But at this, but I also I do think that sometimes that they can be a bit harsh, and the left likes to kind of capitalize on that and say, oh, that's why we're the nice liberals and they're the mean ones because they don't care, and then the conservatives will sometimes play into that hand by saying, just buck up and you know you take some responsibility for your life and move on, right? And that and that's not always possible. So again, I think it's really about looking at the situation. And I mean, even looking at people who are being little babies, a lot of times they're being little babies because there is something really missing for them. And we gotta we gotta meet them where they're at so that they stop being little brats, right? I mean, obviously it depends if they're being um if someone's being. Being, being really hurtful towards someone that's another story but if someone's just being a little brat so you know we're talking about like a kid that's being a brat I mean it's probably because they have a lot of unmet needs going on and unmet needs <laughs> I don't know what I just said um and and we need to address those things and I think sometimes the right misses that and they, they just they just want you to just shut the f up and carry on and do your work right <laughs> so I don't know Um, Yeah, it can be it's a tricky balance. And but I I do have to say through this little my since I've sort of come out as more of a conservative therapist, I have met some other conservative therapists that both uh, both show a lot of compassion and are really good at doing a lot of things we just discussed about being really, really compassionate and really understanding with someone that thinks differently from them. Um, but also encouraging them to have personal responsibility and taking responsibility for their life and making better choices for themselves. I have seen that. That's Um, good. How how can people, how can people find them? (laughs) Well, there is either, I don't know what it's called, but it's on my page. There's a conservative listing website that has started. It's fairly new. Should I send it to you? Earlier, I'll, maybe we'll maybe. Can we put it in the show notes. I'll send it to you after. Sure. Yeah. Please do. Um, is it on that. your website? Is it on your website? It's it's not on my website yet because I haven't put any links on my website, but it is on my in my highlights on my Instagram page. Oh, perfect.
0: Thank yeah, you. Yeah.
1: Under resources.
0: Yeah. It's in there,
1: but I'll I'll, I'll send it to you after. But I the, the people I'm specifically talking about are just people I met in a Facebook group that's therapists among therapists. And unfortunately, a lot of them are kind of in hiding in terms of knowing who they are. But, um, yeah, it's so hard to group people because I, I, you know what I think it is, is it, I don't want to name names, but I think it's the people who are the spokespeople for conservatives come off callous, but I think the conservatives that are really doing therapy or conservatives on day to day are not always so callous. That's, I think that's what I'm noticing.
0: That that's been my experience of conservatives day to day. Honestly, some of the kindest people have been Christian conservatives, and now I feel yeah. feel a little torn because lately, sometimes it goes a little just outside of my belief system. I will say some, you know, some of their ideals and practice and. Um, that's something that I probably will discuss with um, a friend of mine who might come on the show later. For anyone who's okay. listening and is like, can you talk about more? Yes, we will.
1: Um, I, what, I guess yeah. what, what, what's hard yeah. about conservatives, they found that most, most, okay, especially the ones that have risen up and have a voice, you know, they are, honestly, they're very remarkable people, but just not everybody has that they, you know, everybody comes with a different set of things in life and we hope to drive, strive to be better. But I just, I, I think being able to be understanding that we all come with different things and to i don't know i'm not being very articulate here does that make any sense yeah
0: i think you're calling for embracing diversity of thought which is hard to do when some forms it's not just thought thought, but it's resources too resources skills i think it's really more about
1: the resources internally and some people just are inherently it's harder for them to do things and so they need a different special kind of support and they need and 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 I think the left really caters to those people, like, oh, so you don't fit in. You feel like you don't feel good here. So we're gonna hold on to you and say that you're okay. Whereas the right's like, go do better, be a better person. And then and then those people who feel really lost, they 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 gravitate more to the left. So I, I feel like we need to do a better job of reaching those people who feel really lost.
0: Yes, resources and as much as I sometimes get sick of speaking in left and right paradigms, but yes. like the left does have more resources for mental health. Like I I was they nervous do. to call hotlines last year yes. when I, and I used to be very comfortable calling them. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's a difficult topic to talk about, but like uh, suicide prevention, it, I know that's something that, that you've worked in um, mm-hmm. in some capacity and there a lot of people across the board, across various ideologies and realms of thought and skills like have been struggling the past few years. And I, I do feel sometimes like that some of us have struggled more than others, you know, particularly those of us who have been ostracized by Mm -hmm. our, our, so-called communities um but I think it's fair to say in in some capacity that we are in this together on the left and on the right some of us on the left and on the right are in this together in struggling to get through this time for various yeah. reasons um could you speak a little bit more about the well Seuss what what is actually what is your background in preventing suicide with with clients, and I think among teens, and and what what have you learned from that?
1: So I I actually have a lot of experience working with suicidal teens, and I, like I said, I worked in these programs with people who were just recently coming out of the hospital and trying to restabilize, so I've I've done a lot of work with that. I also worked at this high school that, unfortunately, famously had six kids died by suicide in the same year. And I happily, or luckily, I don't know how to put it, was not involved in those cases. So I, I, I'm relieved, I guess, that I didn't, I wasn't one of the people that met one of those kids and then didn't, wasn't able to help, but who I was able to help were the people that knew those kids and were going through their own crises or other people that were just the school in general going through crisis So there were a lot of suicide assessments that I was doing and a lot of sending kids to the hospital because we were concerned about their safety and making sure that they got the help that they needed. So I was doing that work. Wow. Um, and I don't know, what did I learn? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. What did I learn? I mean, it's in terms of the work, it, I learned how to be calm in the situation. I learned, I don't know. I learned, I, I well, I learned how adults can really impact kids. If you're an adult and you're really anxious that something's going to happen, if you're a child and the adults around you are freaking out, that's going to actually make it worse for that child. And unfortunately, a lot of that dynamic happened at that high school for good. And I'm not blaming anybody because they were really scared and, and everybody really did go through trauma knowing that this was happening in their school and no one wanted to sort of wanted blood on their hands but what then what would happen is that would actually in a way create a cycle so that was a problem. Uh, um yeah yeah and yeah so that that was going on and then and then there is there are kids that are attention seeking so you know we talked about human nature and they learned, they learned, oh, if I just say I'm suicidal, I'll get out of this chest. <laughs> wow, that's handy, <laughs> right? So we, we had to learn how to decipher what's the real deal and what's mm. a kid that has this pattern of maybe using it for attention. And um, that was frustrating because yeah. the, the administration wasn't always so good at that because they really wanted to cover their asses. <laughs> so it was hard to be able to you know be able to tease all all that mess out
0: yeah i imagine so Mm -hmm. and and for those who don't know what's the
1: difference between
0: suicidal ideation and suicide attempts
1: so ideation is really just a fancy word for thoughts so some a lot of people live with having thoughts in their minds but it doesn't mean they're going to act on it so you what when you're assessing someone for risk a lot of times someone will say, I think about it, and usually they'll have what's called passive suicidal thoughts, meaning like, I wish I didn't wake up today. And that doesn't mean they want to go kill themselves. It just means that they're feeling really depressed and they don't feel happy with the day or, you know, they're feeling down. But then you have to ask more questions about whether they have an intent to go do something and, and the most risky is when they have an actual plan, when they have it planned out, like, I'm gonna go do this. So at the, in, in Palo Alto that year and here in the Bay Area, terrible way they're doing it is they're going in front of our Caltrain. And so if they if they, the, they all unfortunately have access to the means, but if they say my plan is to go to the train, wow. then you, you, that's when you have to really be concerned. But if they say, "I really don't have a plan," it's just something I'm thinking about, or something that I'm just in the back of my mind, or that I, you know, I wish I, I, I wish I wasn't alive today, or I wish things were different, then they usually don't have to be sent to the hospital. They clearly need help, and they usually need to be sent to therapy, you know, and and work through whatever they're they're going through. But they don't need imminent we need to get you to safety and you need to be supervised 24 hours, you know, for the next three days, at least. Mm. So, so, so what happens is people do get scared when they hear someone say they've had a thought of suicide, because sometimes a lot of those thoughts will come fleeting and then they'll pass. And a lot of times it helps people to recognize that thoughts are, they do, they come and go, they're kind of like a floating clouds or um, they use the metaphor of like a Teflon pan of like they come and they slip away and so if you can help someone if they have a thought it can be a scary thought but a thought is just a thought and it does not something they need to act on and that things change that can help someone so you you have to know the person and obviously know how what what level of risk they're at to be able to know how how to react to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. sounds like heartbreaking, but very important work that you do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Unfortunately, it's all too common. And I think even now more than ever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, Where can you find accurate statistics on that about trans identified children and adults?
1: <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, Which, on, oh, on the, on the suicide? Yeah, on suicide. Oh, okay. So there is this, as you know, there's this sort of narrative that if you don't trans a kid, then they will go kill themselves. And then they tell parents, would you rather have a, a live son or a dead daughter, right? And that's sort of this emotional blackmail. And they say these things, but they're basing this on nothing there actually is no study that shows this is the truth in fact the only study i'm aware of that's the best study that actually has both like a has a control group to show people that you know before transitioning and whether or not they transition makes the difference for them in terms of their mental health and their suicidal behaviors it was a study done in 2003 it was a 30 year 30 year study but it ended in 2003 in sweden i believe Um, It is linked to my Instagram page. But the problem is there really is not great data on this because I think the activists get in the way whenever they try to do more studies on this. Because what they do is they do some questionnaire and they just ask if they have suicidal thoughts. A lot of kids that are going through this have suicidal thoughts. And so then they say, look, they're suicidal. We gotta do something. But they don't actually show whether the intervention, you know, helping them transition is the actual um, relief for the suicidal thoughts. In fact, many people report that the kids that do go through this transition don't get any better. So they'll, they'll show that their transitions after they transition, are, they're still having the same mental health issues that they were having before. And in some cases they're worse. So I wish I knew the answer to that. I think that's, that's one of the biggest problems is there, there is not good data and, and the activists get in the way of many studies that they tried to done to do. So I don't yeah, know. That,
0: that's such a shame because really what's happening is as activism interferes with science and data and therapy, we're actually it's it's not helping anybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, what I will say is if you do look at the studies that they try to present, they prove nothing if you look at them with any type of critical thought because Mm -hmm. they don't actually show they don't show a group of people that were transitioned that even socially, they won't show a group of people that we didn't affirm you know, that, that had these ideas or beliefs that we didn't affirm that they t- we told them, no, you are the boy and girl that you were born in now carry on. And then we don't, and then there's a group of, yes, you're, you're, you're now the opposite gender and we're going to cut your hair and give you these clothes and give you these hormones and let's watch them and see how they do over the next few years. There's not, there's not that study. Um, maybe there's some, there's some ethical issues with that but we don't have that data to be able to really see the difference. Hmm. And there's no proof.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately. No proof. Yeah. And, and you've also spoken about basically suicide as a, like the threat of suicide as a form of blackmail.
1: Yeah.
0: And I, I'm honestly disappointed. I even have to bring it up because um I mean I, I have my own mental health journey. I do feel like I need to say that, you know, I'm not coming at this from a um like a callous conservative perspective. Like I really like feel it very deeply and it's yeah. it's so scary to see actually it's it's being weaponized in a way. You know, like su- suicide is oh, real. For sure. Suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, all these things are real and and horrible to experience and to to witness. Um, but nonetheless, I have to ask, like, is suicide as a
1: threat, a form of blackmail, in your opinion? I think it is. I definitely think it is. So, um, in DBT dialectical behavioral therapy, it's a type of therapy was invented by a lady called Marsha Linehan. She invented this kind of therapy specifically for people with borderline personality disorder. She herself had borderline personality disorder and also had suicide I don't know if she made attempts, but she she went through a lot of this mental health turmoil. so she she knew it firsthand. And in that program that she wrote herself with her own personal experience she she describes threatening someone with suicide to get them to do something as manipulation. So she describes it with that word. People don't like using that word because they think that's a mean word, but it is, but what it is it's manipulation. To, so if you're if you're if you're trying to get somebody to do something, whether that be to go get a treatment, or pay attention to them, or buy them a gift, or not break up with you, or something like that, because they're going to go kill themselves, you are manipulating another person. And so what borderline, uh, I'm sorry, what dialectical behavioral therapy teaches is how to make healthier connections with people and how to express yourself and express your needs in a healthier way so that you're not using this sort of suicide or self-harm threats to get people to stick around because a lot of people who have borderline one of their their characteristics is that they're fear they have a fear of abandonment so they go to extreme measures to make sure that people don't abandon them and i feel like what we're doing is we're teaching people and therapists are now behaving a little bit like borderlines they're they're creating this dynamic where they're manipulating parents or manipulating whoever that they believe this treatment is right that they're by making these threats to be able to do this you know to be able to follow through with the treatment that they believe is necessary and that that's just not right Marsha Linehan herself, the inventor of dialectical behavioral therapy, I believe would not agree with threatening suicide to get people to do things. It is not a healthy way. And, and that even if it was actually true, which it's not, it's still not a good way to do it. Because, well, first of all, how do you know, how can you protect, predict anyone's behavior? If you can't do that. But it's just, it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs>
0: mm. Fair enough. It sounds like a form of victim mentality.
1: Yeah, kind of. Like I will be a victim, right? You're you're like you're messing with me. Like you're if you don't do this thing, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be this victim and it's gonna be your fault. Like you're bla- like basically getting someone guilt. I think it's like a guilt trip thing. You know? I don't if- know if you've ever experienced somebody that's Threaten something bad's going to happen if you don't do it. If you don't do what they demand, that I mean, that is that's a form of abuse, really.
0: Hmm. I do feel like we collectively are caught in a cycle of abuse, and that victims easily can become abusers themselves. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, as someone who has survived abuse and just been in some toxic situations, I. I do think that uh, it can be helpful to identify as the victim just to make sense of a situation, but not to hold on to that label. Mm -hmm. And so how can the victim mentality be avoided moving forward once you've made sense of the situation? And like, is it ever useful to identify as the victim?
1: Well, I think victim, this word's been bastardized. Because when you're really a victim of a crime or you're a victim of abuse in a relationship, you are a victim in that moment. But the problem is, is people have taken on victim as their whole identity long-term. Like you're inherent, people are taking this on as an inherent victim. Or if this happened two years ago, you're inherently always a victim. I think that's the unhealthy piece. Um, but if, you're, if, if something bad happened to you, I think it's okay to acknowledge that this happened to you and that will help you heal. And and then then you become whatever term that you feel comfortable with, a survivor or just a person that's you know carried on with life. Yeah. So I think it's about not taking it on long term. I think that's what it is. And then also not taking it on. I think a lot of people take on this victim mentality without even being victimized. And that's a whole other thing. So just because they maybe feel like they're part of a collective victim or their ancestors were victims, does that make you a victim? I I don't know. Hmm. So that's a whole thing, it's debatable, right?
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say it's it's debatable. Um, Nonetheless, I do think a lot of people across the ideological spectrum would agree that we are in a cycle of abuse. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, in the circles that we run in, we discuss abuse of power, political power. What signs of abuse, such as perhaps narcissistic abuse, are you witnessing on a national and global scale?
1: Well, I mean, what what I've noticed, I mean, we're getting, we're being abused by our government pretty big time. It's when, when someone is telling you what to do and not allowing you to make your own decisions for yourself, I think that's fairly abusive. Um, And then when your peers or your friends aren't listening to you and not having an open conversation with you and labeling you something really evil and bad without actually listening to you, I think that that's pretty abusive dynamic, too. Um, And obviously, they think their point of view is the only point of view. And we're seeing that we're seeing that on all ends. We've all been divided. And I think, honestly, I've now fallen victim to it, too, because. I'm not allowed to speak to people because they've shut me out. So now, now they've made me be this way. Or now, now I'm, 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 they've inherently made me feel defensive. I was so, I was so open and naive, and oh, let's talk. You know, I was like, in a way, like a little kid. You know, two years ago, like, come on, let's just have a conversation about this. Like, I just wanted to show you another point of view, and they're like, no, nope, you're a racist. And so now. I've been told I'm a racist so often that I've shut down to people that I know that have a different opinion than me. And maybe there's that small chance that that person might not behave that way anymore, but I have definitely grown weary. And I think a lot of people have, and that's a shame. I think that's a real shame.
0: Yeah. Understandably. So I've, I've grown weary and then I, you know, I don't want to cancel people or cut people out, Yeah. but at the same time, we only I I would say like we only have one life to live at least only one life in this body and Mm -hmm. how much time do I want to spend this life just debating with people or censoring myself to keep Mm -hmm. the peace so it's a it's a delicate balance and I I really don't know I'm
1: not sure how we get out of this yeah I mean I know you a little bit and I know you have such an open heart and you want to have open conversations and then you're just shut down and that's just really painful. And when that happens over and over again, how are you going to keep doing that? And I don't think, I think that's respectable to not want to have to keep being shut down. And I've been through similar situations. I mean, the truth is that there's people in my family, I, I just keep it really basic. I, and I think they feel that distance, but they, they don't recognize or have the insight but the reason that I just haven't been open about things is because when I've tried to be, they have shut me down and they've become critical. So I can't, I can't have that conversation. So now we're just on a superficial level and it's, it's really, it's sad. It's a loss for all of us. I, I don't know what the solution is, if you're about to ask me that, because I don't know.
0: <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't going to ask you that, because I I know, I know you don't know, because none of us know.
1: Um, um, yeah, it's yeah. a shame. And I think it's healthy to cut people out, especially if they've proved to you that they're not going to listen, and they're not going to respect your, your point of view. I mean, I think it's okay for people to say, I have this point of view and you have that point of view, but let's, you know, let's come, let's, it's okay. But if they say you're a racist for it or a transphobe, or maybe you have that opinion, but really I'm better than you, you know, then I don't, I, I wouldn't want to hang out with those people either. Agreed. Yeah. And as
0: obvious as it is conversations happen with language and with the current co-opting of language it makes mm-hmm. conversations really hard to be had and with the left's hijacking of therapy they have co-opted language such yes. as trigger and trauma Ugh, yes. so what are how have they been co-opted <laughs> and what are the true meanings of those words trigger yeah, and trauma
1: so frustrating i mean you see all these people like no you'll trigger me <laughs> Or they, they really, what they're saying is, uh, please change the subject because I don't want to talk about this thing. So I'm going to say I'm triggered instead. It's a good avoidant tactic. Um, but trigger in the past was a useful thing, it was a useful tool. It's usually used for people with trauma where there's a specific thing that sets them off and it gives them real emotional distress. And so they, the point of learning your triggers is for you to take responsibility for yourself, know that this thing is gonna trigger you. I mean, as, as kind of a basic example is if you were in a car accident and you go by the, the corner that you had that accident in and you start to have heart palpitations because you're at that corner, you know that that corner is gonna trigger you. So now you, you can do something about that. You can first maybe avoid it because you're not ready and then maybe you can slowly expose yourself to this corner and maybe go for a little bit, take a few deep breaths and be ready and then go again and go again until eventually maybe that corner isn't so triggering for you. Right. That's, but you're not going to say, uh, you're not going to tell, I mean, this isn't a person you're not going to tell that corner, you can't exist anymore. Let's go blow it up because it triggers me. Right. So, um, you know, with people, people say, oh, a certain word triggers me, or a certain topic triggers me, the whole point of triggering is for you to be able to manage your feelings because of these topics, and not to censor other people as a result of these triggers, Mm -hmm. so that's what trigger, that, yeah, that whole trigger thing, and it's just overused, and I think it, I, I mean, I'm not against, if people really have Genuine triggers, if someone has been raped, you know, maybe let's talk about rape with that human, with that individual. I think that's respectable. I think that is reasonable. However, if someone's just going to throw out the word trigger over the smallest thing because they want to avoid a topic, that's not reasonable anymore. And really, even the rape victim, hopefully, they're going to do some work on it, and so that they can handle if they're, you know, I mean most people aren't going to sit and talk about graphic details of any rape because that will trigger anybody, a lot of people, but hopefully, you know, a, a more general word or something will be able, they'll be able to handle it. That's the hope, right? So yeah, it's just, a, it's really the the trigger topic. It's really about that person learning the coping skills to be able to handle whatever that thing is that triggers them and not the opposite right and then what was the other one of a trauma trauma yeah so the same thing people are constantly like that's I'm tr- uh, you know I'm traumatized I'm traumatized it's kind of become a little bit of a hyperbole right like people are just to say it willy-nilly but trauma is a real thing people have real trauma and we need to respect that you know there's people who have been through wars there's people who have been raped there's people who have been through terrible things and so to, to kind of downplay that is is unfortunate and that our language has gotten bastardized that way. So, and there's obviously different levels of trauma. And so, yeah, it just, it sort of depends, but people with real trauma are gonna have real psychological issues around their trauma. They're gonna have symptoms. They're gonna have, um, is that the train? <laughs> Sorry, it's a
0: motorcycle. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: They're going to have they're they're you know if they're they're having if they have a panic attack or if you know they have real they have real symptoms. So we have to look at are you are you having real symptoms or are you just feeling a little uncomfortable right now? And and I think we just have to be a little more reasonable about what's the difference.
0: Yes, and I think it it makes sense to acknowledge that we have been through a form of war people across the ideological spectrum would agree that the pandemic was kind of like a war. Um, Like there, there were people who died and there were people Mm -hmm. who suffered in various ways. And um, that was across the board. So, you know, we have this, that form of war, a war of information, a spiritual battle, as some might call it. And uh, this is a lot to handle. And like, I I wonder, I've been wondering for quite some time because I don't wanna like overuse the word trauma for instance, or overuse the word abuse. But I do wonder, is it possible that many people perhaps people like us who have been defeating the mandates and fighting the system, you know, um, and, and others, like, is it possible that many of us who have suffered abuse by political power are suffering from a form of PTSD?
1: I think so. But what what's interesting about trauma and PTSD and all that is each person experience can ex, different people can experience the same thing and how ha, come out differently. So one thing might tra- traumatize one person and not traumatize another. And there's all kinds of factors to that and again like earlier I said we can't understand the brain but it's also about what what individual experiences we each had and then who we are as individuals. So I think for sure. Um, I don't know if I would describe myself as being traumatized at the level of somebody who maybe was, you know, actually on a real battleground, like a Vietnam vet or something. I I don't want to, for, I'm just speaking for myself. I don't want to downplay that, but I certainly am, have this hypervigilance about what's going to happen next. I still live in California and I don't trust my government here. After what they did here, I spent many, many months protesting and I lost my job and I, I lost a lot of things and that was a really difficult time. And so I still have that, a lot of feelings about it, I'll just say that, but I'm also, I, there's a piece of me that's kind of always waiting for that shoe to drop again, I think. And so there is that hypervigilance that, that, that can be characterized as some level of trauma So I guess it just depends on the level and the individual and some people are going to experience it more deeply. I mean, I was lucky. I still had a lot, like I have, I'm married. So I have a husband who has a a salary. And so I wasn't, you know, like worried about whether I was going to eat or, you know, so I didn't have those kinds of fears. Um, There's people who did though. And so that's obviously gonna be more traumatizing for them. They People who lost their whole businesses that they worked their lives for, I think that's probably something that warrants, that could warrant real trauma. Um, you know, All the things that the, I think a lot of kids went through that they, and people who went through these vaccine injuries. I mean, there's, there's so many different th- experiences that people went through. Some of it's vicarious trauma, things that we witnessed, what other people went through. So there I think is just so many different levels. And yes, we've been through a lot. <laughs> um and I think some of that definitely could be characterized as trauma for sure. Mm thank you for those insights it's been
0: it's been a question that's like pressing on me and I Mm. as much as I I want to talk about abuse and trauma and my own my own experiences and like help others through it I I don't want to mislead them and that's why it's so it's so tricky then to also find a therapist who will be a good therapist for you and um, meanwhile I've seen therapists become very political online um, like on the left, like very proud to call out their clients on their alleged privilege, that sort of thing. I actually had a friend who is a therapist. She's not really my friend anymore, but she was like proudly like proclaiming what she was doing at work. And I I see this as like my own friend at the time. And I'm like, how could I trust a, another professional, you know, who's yeah. supposed to be a third party? Um, and, you know, one could argue too that you have gotten political but I would say, maybe I'm biased, but I would say that this is a reaction. That's it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be.
1: I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have to talk about these issues if they hadn't pushed them in my face. And if they haven't pushed them in their clients' faces. If they hadn't, if if they weren't so biased and they weren't, um, t- you know, I actually, I actually joined this group on Facebook. Oh God, they're going to find me. I won't say what it is (laughs) and as part of the, the guidelines, I had to check that I accepted BLM and that I had accepted social justice as part of therapy. I checked it and I don't agree. And so they are making me say, and I don't agree with that. If they just left it alone, I wouldn't say, I would not be talking about whether BLM is harmful or not because that's just something on the side but they're bringing it there. That my organization that covers my whole profession, the National National Association of Social Workers, is splattered with all of this stuff. I mean, there are trainings for me to get continuing education credits on all of these politicized issues specifically. Not they don't even they don't even hide it. So I have to counter it, and at the very least, just help people understand that there's another point of view out there, and that. And in my opinion, these a lot of these ideas are not therapeutic. So yeah, it, I didn't think about this 15 years ago, but now we're in today, we're in 2022 and they've made it this way. They've made everything political. I mean, Nickelodeon is political. We know Disney is super political. These things weren't political in the past. We just used to all enjoy those things. We all used to go to baseball games. They made the the freaking baseball political when they talked about their new election laws in Georgia. I mean, that was insane. Why would they do that? we all used to, uh, America's pastime, everybody liked baseball, no matter what, whoever you voted for, it's ridiculous. So they're creating this divide and and I just, I have to react to it. And there's people out there that need to know that there are therapists that do have a different point of view. So quite frankly, those that do think that BLM is wonderful and is helping the black community, they can go to the 90% of therapists that believe that already. And then the other people that don't believe that will find me,
0: that's really it. Do you, do you think it's really 90% of therapists?
1: Um, they say 90% of the therapists are left-leaning.
0: Really? Well, I know yeah. you've had some therapists reach out to you privately. Mm. um what and of course you know to maintain the anonymity but I'm just curious what have they been saying
1: um most of them just say things to the effect of I'm so glad you're speaking out I feel the same way I can't say anything if I do I'll lose my job one of them even said I can't even follow you because I'm afraid someone will find out and I'll lose my job um A lot, there are a few that are out, but most of those are people in private practice, but even people in private practice are afraid of being out with it because they're afraid that their license will be under threat. So there's a lot of fear. Um, Yeah, it's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, and and what's the difference between a social worker and a therapist, and what are the similarities?
1: So basically I'm a, I'm a social worker. I have a social work degree. So I have a master's in social worker, MSW. I got my clinical license here in California. So now I'm considered an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And when I went through my training, I went to New York University and they have more of a clinical focus. So I learned more about being a therapist there. However, there are different programs and different tracks for social workers. And you can you can do different avenues, so you can become maybe an administrator. Usually, it is get about becoming being a part of a system of some sort, working in a sort of systems idea, um, and it does include some kind of you know social issues. So it makes sense that they've really grasped on to a lot of these ideas, and quite frankly, I did too. <laughs> um, but but you don't necessarily have to be a social worker to be a therapist and you don't necessarily have to be so uh, and then there's other degrees that also perform therapy so there's a marriage and family therapist mft and they also get a clinical license and then there are psychologists and you can have a master's in psychology or a phd in psychology so there's all these different degrees who will perform therapy there is what's called a life coach where you don't need as much credentialing which I think a lot of people are kind of going under that guise because they're afraid of the whole licensing cancel issue. Um, but it, but it, there is less sort of government regulation. So depending how you feel about whether you want, you know, regulations and make sure that they have the experience, then Life Coach may or may not be the right choice. I think it really has to do with the individual. So, and, and sometimes they, a lot of people do have the license, but they're going under the life coach because there's different rules and you can have a little bit more flexible boundaries as a coach than you can as a as therapist. So I don't know, that was a long answer. So basically it depends on what path that person chooses with, with what degree that they use. So a therapist is sort of a catch-all for a bunch of people with different degrees
0: Interesting. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, and I talked about it. it, I I like that you asked me that because that's actually part of one of my lessons that I wrote specifically. I spelled the whole thing out in even more detail. than I just did now about all the different degrees, who who the people are, what, what kind of trainings they, they have, you know, not in depth, obviously, but within a few lines of each and um, to, to help you just have a better idea of who you might want to choose you know wh- what kind of focus they each have in general but but again each person does what they want with what as we all know you go to college you go you go get a training and then that person takes it and then they they do what they wish with it you know depending on who they are and what experience they gain after they graduate so
0: okay thank you and given all your experience as a therapist social worker and you know the it seems the awakening that you've been through the past few years, how would you compare the desire for medical freedom regarding vaccinations with the desire for medical freedom to allow children and adults to be treated for gender dysphoria?
1: Yeah, you know, it's complicated, honestly. Um, I believe clearly, I obviously, I believe in medical freedom for vaccinations. I, I Well, especially ones that are not approved by the FDA and have emergency <laughs> authorization. Um, but but uh now maybe even for all vaccinations, I think people are allowed to have exemptions. With the with the, the uh gender medicine so well I I you know this is something probably people should have lots of debates on, but my my personal opinion is I don't believe children should be medically transitioned because There are so many risks and so many things done that don't have the data or don't, we don't know. And so we're basically creating medical experiments on children. And so I don't see that that should be a freedom. I actually don't think it should be allowed. So I guess I'm not so libertarian on that because I know and have seen the damage that is done to many people. So I would at the very least want real informed consent, which there is very little of. Um, They they like to say there's informed consent, but there isn't. Um, They just like to use those words. So if there was real informed consent where they actually got warnings about what really could happen and how testosterone can really screw up your genitals and how testosterone actually can cause you heart problems and how testosterone can screw up your mood to the point where you might end up in a psych hospital and it's irreversible in most cases. And there's this countless things it can cause cancer. If, if those things were really talked about at length and then the person goes ahead and chooses to do it, maybe I'd, I'd be more open to it. Also the fact that There's so much propaganda and this is all presented as just like, you know, sunshines and roses and then you do it, all your problems will be solved. And like, oh yeah, we'll call that informed consent. I don't think so. So I would personally like that stuff to be blocked, especially for children. That's my opinion on that. Um, Adults is a tricky one. Um, If you listen to certain detransitioners, there's one who's very outspoken named Tulip on Twitter. Um, He thinks very much, even for adults, that they shouldn't be allowed to medically transition. I'm not sure if he thinks maybe after some time. I'm not sure, but he's been through real hell and back. And he was an adult when it happened, and he did not get informed consent. And he he describes it as being very coerced or very rushed. And so he doesn't think even as an adult, that adults should should be allowed to do this without a lot of vetting at least. Um, so I think the problem is, is that there's just not the right information out. And there's just so much biased information that people are making decisions without the right information. And so I don't think there should be freedom with all this biased information or lack of information. I
0: don't know. Yeah. Informed consent really is critical to
1: decision-making in general.
0: um, We didn't have informed
1: consent with the vaccines either. I I probably would have gotten the vaccine initially if I didn't have this medical issue that made me take a pause initially, because you know, it sounded good. Right. (laughs) I thought it was good. Yeah. And and what is your message
0: for parents who are concerned about their children, who are questioning what
1: they call their gender identity? What is my advice to parents? Well, first of all, um, find other parents. There are some support groups out there, so you're, you're not alone. So I would do that. Um, I would be really looking out for who is influencing your child, um, make sure that they're not hanging out with other adults, neighbors or whatever, that might be influencing your child in a way that you don't agree with. Social media is maybe the biggest problem or culprit of all of this. That's one of the biggest problems I'd say in our society right now. And that if you talk to any parent who has gotten their child sort of out of the gender ideology Cult, <laughs> I'm just going to call it that. If once they get them out of that, they always say that they, the thread is always that that kid spent so much time on social media first. And then that's how they couldn't get them out, that they were just so immersed and kind of lost their humanity by being in social media. So if you could remove them from social media and devices, or at least limit it, that I think is a huge factor in helping you understand what's that, like helping that child and helping you understand what's maybe really going on. There's probably underlying issues happening in your case. So find a therapist that will figure out what are the underlying issues and explore what are the dynamics in your family. Maybe your child is looking for something from you or from someone else in your family or had a fall out with their peers. So just exploring what is actually really going on with your child it probably is some kind of cry for help. Um, yeah, recognize too, unfortunately, the, this is all about separating your child from you and to re, and that your child's probably gonna, has learned through maybe what they saw on social media or other people that are influencing them, that you're the enemy. But even if they make you feel that way, remember you're not the enemy and you love your child And keep reminding your child of that, even though your child may not listen to that if they think you're a transphobe now. So there's so many elements to it and um, (laughs) it's not easy. And give yourself a break, find other people that can support you.
0: Thank you. And I really love what you're doing to bring clarity to an otherwise very muddled landscape these days. Yeah. Do you like to
1: share more about where people can find you and the program that you're developing? Okay. So yeah, I'm doing, I'm, I'm, my little tagline is I'm the truthful therapist and it's called therapy, not indoctrination. And the reason I started to build this program is because I did see a lot of this indoctrination happening in therapy sessions and in therapy. I saw it in the program I was working at last year where they therapists were not challenging the pronouns or asking any questions. And I just thought that was really different (laughs) and things were really changing. So I started this program to basically help educate parents to navigate the mental health system because it's so, I know it's so overwhelming and so vast. And unfortunately, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know a lot of people will need the mental health system. In fact, now more than ever, after all these lockdowns and all this division, all the things that we just talked about, right? All these all the war that we all went through, all the losses and the grief and the changes and the and everything. So you know, kids are feeling that grunt. And so we can't not just say, well you know, we don't need therapy or all the therapists are crazy, so forget it. We, we're, gonna need, we're gonna need to find the good ones. We're gonna need to sift them out and find them. So a lot of what my program is, is helping parents find the good ones. I have questions that you can ask them to help basically test them and challenge them. Um, I wrote about what you should expect in therapy and, and how you should have a proper assessment and all the different things and how you should be involved in therapy as a parent and that you should never be shut out of the process a therapist might say oh no you can't be involved because that'll ruin our trust well maybe they're not going to tell you every single detail but you should definitely be involved and you should definitely know what's happening and you should definitely know what are the treatment goals and what kinds of modes of therapy they're using with your child and you should be asking lots of questions and that therapist should not be shutting you out. So I really wanted to write this program to empower parents to be able to ask questions and not be intimidated and think that, oh, they're just the experts and I need to just do what they say. Because I think that's how a lot of parents have gotten into trouble or their, their children have gotten into trouble because they found therapists that sort of indoctrinated their child and turned their child against them. And that's a really sad thing to watch And I just wanted to prevent that and be a part of the solution.
0: Beautiful. And when
1: do you expect to launch your program? So I expect to launch it in early September. I'm actually going to visit family next week. And so I don't want to launch it while I'm traveling. But after I'm back, um, I'm hoping I can have it all ready and launched. I've written 10 classes on all different subjects and I have a lot more ideas to write about. So um, hopefully it'll be ready by September. We'll have it all set up. We got the LLC, we we actually went to the county two days ago and got that set up with my business license. And we still need to go to the bank. (laughs) So all these little details are still being worked out, but we're hoping to have it launched by September.
0: Oh, great. Well, we'll have to celebrate when I see you next week.
1: Yeah. So it's exciting and yeah, I just, like you said earlier, I don't think I would have thought of doing this if there wasn't, I just feel like there's this force that I need to kind of fight against and just empower other parents to just be aware and knowledgeable so that they can just get what they need and get, get somebody that matches their values and work with them ethically.
0: Well said. And in the meantime, people should follow you on Instagram,
1: right? Yes. Oh, yes. So my website is thetruthfultherapist.org. My Instagram is the.truthfultherapist. And I am on Twitter as redpilledlcsw, although I'm not a fan of Twitter, (laughs) but I'm on there.
0: Okay. Thank you, Pamela. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day over in California.
1: And we will see each other soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Thank you for giving me a voice. And um, it's wonderful. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. Take care.
1: Take care.